Welcome to another episode of Bowel Sounds, the Pediatric GI Podcast, the official podcast of the North American Society of Pediatric Gastroenterology, Hepatology, and Nutrition, or NASPGAN. My name is Peter Liu. I'm one of the hosts, and I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Lee, a pediatric gastroenterologist from Nationwide Children's Hospital. Hello. How's it going? I'm doing fine, although um, I'm only going to be with you for a short time on today's episode. Uh, yes. <laughs> What happened? Well, we, <laughs> so we've been doing this, what now? Like this is our fourth year, third yeah, year, fourth, four years, four years. Uh-huh. And for the very first time you and I were sitting in here oh my gosh. with our guest Yep. and he's like a giant in pediatric surgery, Dr. Dr. Jacob Langer. Correct. And what, what question was it that we realized we were not recording? We're almost at the end. We're like, Oh, what, what do you see in the future of Hirschsprung disease? And then. He was answering, and that's when I realized that the button was not red. It was green, which means we did not record anything we talked about. And it had been an hour. It was a full point. hour. It was a full hour. And like he oh was so gosh. kind about it, but I just couldn't be there for the re-recording. Yeah. But that was, I literally was like, I mean, he was in the middle of answering, so I did not stop him right away. Yeah. That seemed like the longest, like 30 seconds of my life. Cause you were like, what is going on? You two oh, were no. like all still happy. And yeah. I was like panicking. Oh my God. I literally was like, I could feel sweat starting to form <laughs> and, uh, Oh, I just felt sick. I can't believe that happened. <sighs> I know. Well, and like, I mean, it's easy to do, but, uh, for the listeners, we've now instituted a pre-recording timeout. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. Right. Guest and right. Recording yeah. button push. <laughs> oh my gosh. So yeah. yeah. Um, you know, Dr. Anyway. Langer, so gracious. He was he was comforting me. He was. Do you remember that? Yeah, he really was. So nice. <laughs> oh, ultimately he was like, if this is the worst thing that happens to you this week, then uh, your life is pretty good. And I was like, Yeah, this yeah, probably will be the true. worst thing that happens to me this week. And for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, all right. So not to change the subject, but uh, my kids had a really great time at Emma's birthday party this weekend. That's good to hear. So yeah, yeah. we had Emma turn two last weekend. And, uh, you know, maybe this would be a good time to get some feedback. Okay. You know? Yeah, I'm here for it. This is the first child's birthday party that we've ever organized. Because when she was one, I mean, she I had viral gastro. Party. I feel like, I, did I go? All no. right. We had maybe you like had a hangout day. thing no, later. No, you did the 100 Oh, yeah, 100 days. Yes, yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Korean thing yeah, for those who yeah. don't know. Um, I think it's like babies didn't always survive the hundred days. So yeah, it's a so big you celebrate. thing. Mm-hmm. First of all, the whole week we were like, we don't know what kids are going to do at our house. We have like hmm. no toys except for toys for like a baby. Yeah. Because a lot of the people you invited were your friends and their uh-huh, kids, yeah. not necessarily Emma's friends. Emma doesn't have any friends. Well, she's two. Exactly. <laughs> Okay, so I have some questions for you. Okay. For your feedback. Ready. We had, I think we invited too many people. Maybe. No one wants to go to a two-year-old's birthday party. I mean, I like it. It was fun. It was more to hang out, right? Like, I guess it depends on, it depends on the purpose of the party. Like, if the party's for the kid. Definitely not. Then definitely not. But like, if it was like, like a lot of the people were like, your friends are friends. Like, it was really fun just to hang out with our friends. Okay. You're right. So that was good. Cause I felt guilty. I I really was feeling guilty for inviting people. Why? I, I was like, man, there were like alcohol there. So yeah, that's that helps. Yeah. We had alcohol. We had like, 
No kid-friendly drinks, actually. Well, you had orange juice, but <laughs> for, the, oh, for the mimosas. But that's you right. had like the most my kid-friendly food that ever existed. Uh, because at one point, I look yes. over at Avery. I can't find my kids. I'm like, I don't know what they're doing. <laughs> I look over at Avery, and there's like eight adults standing around oh, her, and marveling. just her yep. sitting at the island eating all the food. Yeah. Oh, it was super impressive. For like 30 minutes. Like, I don't even know what she was doing. The I next day, she washed her hands. My mom and uh, Leslie's mom are both talking about the girl who's just finishing off all the fruit. <laughs> and how, how nice and sweet she was. She's just smiling and just like destroying <laughs> the uh, fruit salad. I think she ate all your prosciutto also. She's like a charcuterie fan. That's incredible. So, yeah. I mean, this is like two hours in, Avery's still there, just like chowing down. <laughs> All the uh, everyone else had already eaten. She's just killing the leftovers, which is <laughs> super impressive. I was very happy about that. Yeah, so yeah. the food was good. Um, the other funny thing was, I thought it was hilarious that so my dad is an aerospace engineer, mm -hmm. and so many of our friends' kids are really into space. Oh yeah, they were. Oh, he was super into it. Yeah, my dad was so excited. Yeah, he just retired. He brought. I don't know if you saw, he brought what he called his visual aids. He oh, had like yeah. all these print posters yeah, and flyers like and the, stickers. On the little coffee table. Yeah, he mm -hmm. like had it ready for as soon as someone asked him about space, he, he was gonna like, he whipped it out and then just like went through all these different oh, missions man. coming up and Artemis, whatever that is, and uh, flying to the moon to build a nuclear reactor, whatever. You know, the reason, one of the reasons I became a doctor or I actually got the confidence to like succeed in school uh -huh. is like going to take your, my aunt worked for NASA. She was an aerospace oh, wow. engineer. So I was about nine or 10 and no one in my family, like direct family had gone to college. Yeah. She had me for take your daughter to work day. Oh. And I got to see like part of the Hubble telescope and I got to watch That's like, awesome. I got to watch a live thing and like see everybody all dressed up making the satellites and whatever. And seeing all these women succeed yeah. in like STEM career really pushed me towards math science and ended up in medicine. That's How crazy awesome. that? I should, I would love to hear the stories from your dad. I bet he has a lot. Well, I also went with him to work one day when I was like in junior high. Yeah. Or maybe it was in elementary school. Yeah, it's like one of those Man. take your kids to work day things. I mean, he he spent a lot of his career working on the International Space Station, which, yeah, yeah that's cool. But he works in an office and mm. like I just sat in his office. Um, no, I actually like, <laughs> I wish I was more interested in it when I was a kid. I think yeah. as a kid, it was just like, oh, my dad does it. I don't want to. Oh, no, I don't want to do go at three in the morning to go watch like a meteor shower with you. Uh, that kind of stuff. I see. But uh, now yeah. I wish I did. <laughs> All right, moving on, moving on. Okay, so today, what a guest. You mentioned he is a giant in the field yes. of pediatric surgery. He's the first surgeon we've ever had on our podcast. You're right. Yeah. Yeah. So First of many. I hope we have more. Yeah. Yeah, we're well, planning on having more. We will hopefully. have more. Yeah. Dr. Jacob Langer. He is a pediatric surgeon. He was, for many years, the chief of pediatric surgery at SickKids. He is one of the pioneers in many different areas of pediatric surgery, but probably best known, as we talk about, for his work in caring for kids with Hirschsprung disease. Mm -hmm. And um, I think he has played a major role, not only in terms of like the technical advances, and we talk about a couple of them, including uh, anal sphincter Botox injection, which now, you know, every GI, mm. every modalist at least, you know, is a huge fan of. Mm -hmm. um, well, but he was also, the first one to do it. Yeah. Just so crazy. Cool. 
Um, but also, you know, in terms of teaching and he's just so passionate about teaching and also passionate about teaching GI doctors. Cause we had a conversation about this a few years ago, teaching GI doctors about what to do if there's issues after Hirschsprung disease surgery. Yeah. So as we talk about like the surgery obviously does not fix everything forever. There's still pathology there. And so we talked to him a lot about kind of practical step-by-step ways of trying to figure out what the underlying problem is uh, for a child who's struggling after surgery. Mm-hmm. He's also published more than 300 papers and 75 book chapters. Well, and he's put out a Spotify like album. Oh, it's, a, it's an album album. It's an album. Yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. Jacob, we'll put the link, jacoblangermusic.com. I actually love that you have someone who's so accomplished, has done so much over so many years, but still has a lot of passions yeah. outside of medicine as well. And I think that's so important for like maintaining that well-rounded life or whatever, right? right? right. Like, well, let's hear about show. it since, you know, I didn't get to hear this, episode, this version. <laughs> let's go. Yeah. It was nice to have a rehearsal beforehand. We uh, kind of knew exactly where he was going to go. It might be our best episode ever. Right. Right. We practiced the <laughs> entire thing before we actually recorded it. So a special thing also for this episode is we're going to feature his music on the episode. Yeah. So the transition music to follow this segment is going to be an original from jacoblangermusic.com. Yeah, check it out. All right. So Dr. Langer, thank you so much for coming back again for another interview. So yes, I have to admit that we actually already did this interview. We talked for a full hour. It was excellent. Told a bunch of stories. And then really, I think the second to last question, I looked down and we were not recording. And so I am so, so sorry. I cannot believe that happened. But thank you so much for coming back again during your limited time in Columbus to record. Um, It is, of course, an honor to have you here. Thank you. You know, so we'll start with our most challenging question, perhaps. How would you describe yourself in one sentence? I am a lucky man. And the reason is because I've had a marriage that's lasted almost 45 years, still happily married. I have three kids who are launched and off the payroll and uh, three grandchildren with another one on the way. So I'm a lucky man. Yeah. You spent most of your career at SickKids in Toronto. You've been all over the United States and in Canada as well, but Toronto is kind of the, the main place that you've been. Um, I've been there a few times. I love that city. But as a uh, local there, what are things that uh, we should check out that the average tourist might miss? Well, I think Toronto, number one, it's in Canada, so it's yes. full of Canadians. And that, <laughs> that makes huge it a positive. Wonder, wonderful city just to start with. <laughs> but um, I think the the key feature of Toronto that uh, is, is fantastic is the multicultural nature of mm-hmm. the city. Uh, there are hundreds of different kind of ethnicities and races and people that live there. And um, so a visitor to Toronto should really check out the small neighborhoods um, and the ethnic food and the ethnic events uh, that, that happen in those neighborhoods. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like every time we go there, I've been a few times with my parents and uh, we always try to find more Chinese food there because I feel like the Chinese food is incredible there. You could go to a different Chinese restaurant every day yeah. and never run out. Before we get into our topics, so of course, you are a pioneer in the field of pediatric surgery in many different areas. I feel like every time I talk to somebody and mention that we're interviewing you, they mentioned something else that you've done. Um, but one of the big areas is uh, Hirschsprung disease and the surgery and care for kids even after surgery. 
um, for kids who have Hirschman disease. So can you tell me how did that uh, passion, that interest develop? Well, when I was training in pediatric surgery, I learned about Hirschsprungs like, mm-hmm. like everybody does when they're um, training in pediatric surgery. Um, and the thing I thought I was going to do was fetal surgery. And oh, wow. I, so I worked for a couple of years with Mike Harrison, who's the father of pediatric surgery in, in San Francisco, and got interested in gastroschisis, which is associated with intestinal dysmotility. My first job was in Hamilton at McMaster University, and I was lucky enough to be part of a very strong research group there that were mostly interested in inflammatory bowel disease. So one of the PhDs in that, uh, in that group gave a talk about uh, the interactions between nerve and smooth muscle. So I talked to him afterwards and said, hey, we've got this disease where the nerves don't grow normally. And uh, so that led to a little study where we were growing uh, nerves on muscle monolayers using the normal and the aganglionic bowel from Hirschsprung's patients, just kind of a flyer uh, to see what would happen. I saw a flyer, uh, talking about flyers, I, I saw a flyer from an organization in the United States. It was a parent organization for kids with pseudo-obstruction. And I thought, well, this is, uh, Hirschsprung's is kind of like a pseudo-obstruction. They were offering a $5,000 grant for research, so I applied for it, and I ended up getting the grant. Oh, wow. And, um, and I got to know the woman, uh, Andrea Anastas, who, who ran this organization. And that organization eventually combined with the, the parent organization for Hirschsprung's disease, mm-hmm. became the American Pseudo-Obstruction and Hirschsprung Society. A few years after I started in Hamilton, I moved to St. Louis, and that was also the beginning of the internet in the early mm-hmm. 90s. So Andrea Anastas started getting all kinds of emails and, uh, and was contacted by many families of kids with Hirschsprungs who were not doing very well. So yeah. she knew a pediatric surgeon who was now relocated to St. Louis. So she started <laughs> just sending them all to me. Yeah. And, um, and I became acutely aware of how many kids with Hirschsprungs have problems after their uh, pull-through surgery. And I started thinking deeply about Hirschsprung's disease and trying to come up with strategies and ended up kind of designing a, a new operation. And, and one thing led to another. And suddenly I was, you know, 10 years later, I found myself an expert on Hirschsprung's <laughs> But it's all about serendipity. And I think yeah. a lot of people's careers, if you ask them, uh, serendipity plays a big role in, in where they end up. Yeah. I mean, as part of this podcast, we ask everybody and it's always that kind of story. No one's born, you know, passionate about inflammatory bowel disease. Uh, it's always a developed thing that oftentimes is due to chance. One thing that's kind of interesting is, you know, so that, uh, the fact that it coincided with the, uh, the uh, adoption of the internet. I mean, I think many of us think about, oh yeah, social media affecting medicine is a new thing, but it's really not, you know, since the beginning of the internet, um, not really the beginning, but you know what I mean? The more widespread use of email, I feel like this has always been a thing. Families trying to reach out for support and, and connection for these, especially for these rare disorders. Um, so one thing I remember hearing, I think at a dinner that we had uh, maybe last year, that that organization was also how you first met Carlo Di Lorenzo. Is that right? Yes, that, that's right. So um, Andrea Anastas had connections with a number of the early um, GI motility people mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. Uh, in, in pediatrics, um, Paul Hyman was really the, oh, the yeah, original right. guy who the, you know, kind of the father of pediatric yep. motility. Um, and Andrea, because it was a pseudo obstruction society, she had connected with him. Mm-hmm. Um, and then many of the people who he trained in, 
including Carlo, yeah. uh, used to come to all these meetings that I would get invited to to speak about uh, pseudo obstruction and Hirschsprung. So I, I met Carlo many years ago, I think even when he was still training. Wow. Um, we're both getting older now, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> we were training and uh, early in our careers around the same time. Yeah, yeah, because I think he was at UCLA working with Paul Hyman to do right. some training. And it's crazy. I mean, it's decades ago. I feel like it's like, you know, it's a small world. Everyone you meet, got to be nice to because you might be stuck with them forever. <laughs> but um, one of the coolest stories that I have um, experienced, I think, at any conference does involve you. So I wanted to tell that story if you're okay with sure. uh, me disclosing this. So I think it was so pre-COVID um, 2019, there's a conference in Vienna, Austria. It's a pediatric colorectal conference. And uh, the person organizing was someone who spent some time in Columbus, so invited me and Des Jakob to come. And uh, you and your crew graciously took us up into the peds uh, surgery group that kind of went out. And uh, there was a maybe a sort of a dive bar, a little bit underground. It was kind of cold out. It was after Thanksgiving, before Christmas, like beautiful atmosphere. We're in this bar. You saw a guitar, a decorative guitar hanging on the wall, took it down, tuned it up, and then started playing your own original music. That blew my mind. I mean, there's, I saw videos of that, uh, that night. So tell me, uh, clearly music has means a lot to you and has meant a lot to you over the course of your life. What role has that played in your career in life in general? Well, I, I mean, I've always been passionate about music. I got my first guitar when I was, I think, 12 or 13. Mm -hmm. um, and all through high school and, and college, I, I played a lot. I played in coffee houses around, uh, around oh, Toronto. that's awesome. Um, and, and I wrote a lot of songs. And, and then at, at, at one point, uh, I had to make a decision. Do I want to kind of go to medical school or do I want to try and do music as a career? And I, I thought, well, I can always... Um, play music on my own time and, and right. be a doctor. So I went to medical school and I continued to play music and uh, all through medical school. But then when I became a surgery resident, it just, it was just too busy. Right. This is before, you know, work hour restrictions and oh, post, going home post call. <laughs> so, um, so I really didn't have time to play music. I, I got married young and I started, we started having kids. So between work and kids, it, it just, it just kind of fell by the wayside. Right. And then you fast forward to <clears throat> probably about 10 years ago, I took a sabbatical. During the sabbatical, I, I started playing my guitar again, and I kind mm -hmm. of pulled out all these old songs that I used to play and decided I wanted to record some of them just really for my own pleasure. But that kind of led to what ultimately became a CD that mm -hmm. I released about uh, five years ago. I had a lot of people in my past that I uh, used to play with. And so I called them up and said, Hey, would you, you know, put a piano track on this or wow. drum track on this one? And it ended up being a, a CD. We had a CD release party, which oh, was wow. uh, on my 60th birthday. So oh, sort of a, oh, most that's people awesome. I know don't have a 60th birthday party. That's also a CD <laughs> release party, but right. uh, it was great. Oh, wow. Um, so music has become a very, very important part. And as I kind of head into retirement, it's giving me something that, uh, that I can spend a lot of time doing. And uh, I think it's, everybody should have other things in their life besides what they do at work. Right. Um, and try and cultivate those things uh, because it makes you a, a better, more well-rounded person, I think. Yeah. And it's also cool. It's like encouraging for someone like me who's at the beginning of this career that, you know, something I'm really passionate about, it's not gone forever if I put it on pause, you know, even if it's for a few decades. Nope, so that's right. That's really cool. Yeah. Okay. Getting to our topic. So, you know, I think in reality, I would love this episode to really focus on um, 
you know, surgery and afterwards, like the problems, like troubleshooting problems that can happen even after the corrective surgery. But I would like to start a little bit with some of the basics. So we're talking about Hirschsprung disease today. First of all, there's no apostrophe S, right? No, I'm, I'm an old guy, so occasionally I lapse back into calling <laughs> Hirschsprung's, but it should be really Hirschsprung disease. Right, because he did not have Hirschsprung disease. So, okay. And then, so this disease, just really briefly, so what is it and what is our understanding of the pathophysiology underlying the disease? So Hirschsprung disease is, is where the ganglion cells have not formed properly in the distal intestinal tract, usually just the rectum or rectosigmoid about 80% of the time, but occasionally it can extend more proximal to uh, in, even involving the whole colon and in rare cases involving the entire intestinal tract. Hmm. Ganglion cells are derived from the neural crest cells and the neural crest cells, most of them start up in the vagal source and they migrate distally along the intestinal tract till they get to the bottom. The thinking is we, we know that this is likely genetic disease, mm -hmm. although it's the genetics are complex. It's not a simple genetic disease, but um, whatever mutation you have, uh, the most common ones are RET and uh, endothelin system. Um, causes either early maturation of the neural crest cells or early differentiation so that they no longer can migrate and therefore they, they're arrested mm -hmm. proximal to the distal rectum. So that causes a functional intestinal obstruction. There's a lot of work being done on the, on the genetics of this. So we have some basic understanding, but we don't, we don't fully understand it yet. Yeah. So more to come. Yeah. And uh, in terms of presentation, I think many of us think of Hirschsprung disease as presenting early on, like an obstructive picture. But as you've talked about in some of your reviews, there's really, I think, three kind of categories of presentation, including neonatal obstruction, but also the older child with chronic constipation, and then also kids who just have enterocolitis. Can you elaborate on that a little bit more? Yeah, about 50% of the kids with Hirschsprungs present as a newborn or a small infant uh, with full-blown intestinal obstruction. And the differential diagnosis includes other things like uh, intestinal atresias or uh, meconium ileus related to cystic fibrosis. But there are some kids who manage to get through that period and develop chronic constipation. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times, you know, a gastroenterologist will be faced with a child who has chronic constipation that's quite severe right. um, and should be thinking about Hirschsprung's as a possible uh, part of that differential diagnosis. And there are, are a number of papers that have been written to tell you what are the risk factors that uh, make it more likely it might be Hirschsprung's, including things like a family history of Hirschsprung disease, an associated syndrome that we know is associated with Hirschsprung, like Down syndrome. Mm -hmm. And also if, the, if it goes back to infancy, to, to birth, you know, failure to pass meconium in the first 24 hours, that's an important question to ask every time you see a child right. with chronic constipation and uh, failure to thrive. And then there's a small group that, uh, that don't actually have as many obstructive symptoms uh, or chronic constipation, but they have enterocolitis, which is an inflammatory condition that is sometimes associated with Hirschsprung. Um, and those kids will present with um, kind of a picture of sepsis and diarrhea. Hmm. It's important to remember that uh, even though we always think of Hirschsprung disease as being constipation and obstruction, there are a small number of kids who present with this diarrhea and sepsis. Interesting. In terms of like, you, you know, mentioned the older child with constipation. I mean, we have, I'm sure you've seen too, like some older adolescents, young adults who just have struggled their entire lives and never really had testing for it. And, uh, sometimes present very, very ill, even if they've made it out of childhood, they need to 
it still needs to be in our differential. Right. Um, and then moving on kind of like stepwise. So, you know, in the child that we suspect this may be a thing. So of course the traditional uh, diagnosis is going to be made based on pathology, rectal biopsy, but there's, you know, a couple of different techniques that we'll commonly use. So rectal suction biopsy versus a full thickness biopsy. What are the roles for those two? What's like the age cutoff that would make you think one versus another? And also as a modalist, you know, I'm interested in monometry. Like what is the role for anorectal monometry in this scenario? Right. Rectal biopsy is really the definitive diagnostic test. And in a small child, uh, the suction biopsy is preferable because it's done at the bedside. There's no need for anesthesia. Um, And most of the time you can make the diagnosis. You can either see ganglion cells um, or if you see absence of ganglion cells associated with hypertrophic nerves and uh, absence of calretinin staining. Some people still use cholinesterase staining as well. Mm. Um, But in order to make that call, you have to have enough submucosa sure. that you're not going to get sampling error. So in a baby or a small child, the uh, suction biopsy usually gives you enough of a sample. But the older the child, the thicker the mucosa um, and the harder it is to get an adequate sample. So as a rule of thumb, ab- about a year mm-hmm. or older, a lot of times you just can't do the suction biopsy properly and, and you need to do a full thickness biopsy, which requires a general anesthetic and has a slightly higher risk. Sure. Um, manometry um, is useful because kids with Hirschsprungs are missing their rectoanal inhibitory reflex or the rare. Mm-hmm. So in an older child with chronic constipation, um, I'll often ask for manometry first. If the manometry shows a normal rare, then that pretty much rules out Hirschsprung's disease. Hirschsprung disease. Hirsch- oh, and, yourself. Yes. I told you I'm old. I we can edit sometimes. that out later. <laughs> if it doesn't show a rare, that doesn't mean it is Hirschsprung's. Right. It can have false, uh, false positive uh, manometry. So you then need to follow that with the full thickness biopsy. Yeah. And then, you know, so once we have that diagnosis, we're thinking about, well, you know, they're, they're going to need surgical repair. How do you think about the timing of that? And, you know, sometimes we'll encounter patients who, are in rectal irrigations for a, period, for a period of time or who may need a colostomy? How do those things play into the uh, lead up to the surgery? Well, for, for many years um, after the, the surgical procedure was uh, first described, and that, and that was in 1948, by the way. so it's not okay. that long ago. Hmm. Um, that, was, that was when people realized that aganglionosis was the, the cause of Hirschsprung's disease. Before uh-huh. that, they had they'd have this, uh, you know, megacolon, congenital megacolon. And a lot of times the surgeon would take out the dilated bowel, which, cause they didn't understand what right. was going on. So uh, Swenson described the first operation and, and initially he did it without a colostomy, but because in those days, surgical techniques weren't as developed a lot of, there were a lot of complications. So surgeons started doing a routine colostomy. Um, and when I was training in the 1980s, we did routine colostomies for every child with Hirschsprung mm-hmm. disease. I think the first description was in the 80s, but really through the 90s, people started realizing that you probably didn't need to do a routine colostomy. And uh, we started doing primary pull-throughs. Uh-huh. Um, so as soon as the diagnosis is made, then you can go ahead and, and do a pull-through. And, and then the controversy was, should you wait, if you have a baby who has Hirschsprung disease based on their biopsy, should you wait until they're a little bigger? Right. Um, and maybe the operation would be a little bit easier and safer and just irrigate them while you're waiting. Or should you do a um, 
pull through just right away, even right. if the child is uh, only two weeks old. There remains controversy about that. The advantage of waiting and irrigating is that maybe the operation's a little bit easier. Mm-hmm. Um, in Canada, where we have trouble getting operating time, sometimes that in itself is a reason to wait because you sure. can't get time in the OR. But the disadvantage of waiting is that some kids will get enterocolitis, mm-hmm. which can be fatal. Mm-hmm. Um, and I've had that experience where you know I've been waiting for oh, wow. time in the OR and a kid is at home irrigating and the irrigations aren't going well and the kid will come in with, with pretty severe enterocolitis. So, oh, okay. so uh, my own preference is to do the pull through as soon as I can after the diagnosis. But, but this is uh, still remaining a controversial yeah. issue. There's some variation in each pediatric surgeon's preference in terms of the different types of surgery for Hirschsprung disease. Can you run through like the major types of Hirschsprung surgery and how they differ? Yeah, there are three um, common operations that are done. The first one was the Swenson operation mm-hmm. that I mentioned before, and that's essentially just removing all of the aganglionic bowel down to um, just above the anal sphincter and bringing the normal bowel that has normal ganglion cells down and just sewing it to the to the anus just above the sphincter. Mm-hmm. And the goal of all Hirschsprung surgery is to remove the aganglionic bowel and bring normally innervated bowel down to the anus without interfering with the anal sphincters. Right. Um, so that's the Swenson. It's kind of the, the simplest. The Sawave operation uh, was designed because in the early days of the Swenson operation, there was uh, a concern that uh, that dissection we, way deep down in the pelvis could injure pelvic nerves or, or vessels. And so the Sawave operation, you strip the mucosa away from the aganglionic rectum um, and then bring the normal bowel down through that uh, mus- muscle cuff mm-hmm. that's left behind and sew it just above the anal sphincter. Nowadays, people generally try and leave a, a shorter cuff because one of the problems with the Sawave operation, it does prevent that risk in the, deep in the pelvis, but it, you also leave this aganglionic cuff behind right. that can cause uh, constriction or obstruction of the pull-through bowel. And then the third operation is the Duhamel operation, which, um, which takes advantage of the plane behind the rectum that's avascular. What you do is you, you leave a short amount of rectum behind. Uh, you bring the normal bowel behind this native rectum that's aganglionic um, and then staple the two lumens together. So mm-hmm. you, the, the resulting lumen has aganglionic bowel in the anterior half and the normal, normally innervated bowel in the posterior half. Having said all of that, uh, there, there is no study that's really shown superiority of one technique over the other. Um, in, in the UK, for example, the Duhamel is, is much more widely done than it is in North America. Hmm. Um, uh, all of these operations now can be done using minimally invasive surgical techniques, either laparoscopic or transanal, mm-hmm. um, or a combination of the two. But I think the bottom line is that uh, a surgeon should do whichever operation they've been trained to do and which they do frequently so that they get very good at it. Yeah. I feel like the terms suave cuff and dumal pouch help me like, keep straight in my mind, which, you know, as a, as a GI doctor who really didn't learn about this in fellowship, I think helps me keep straight, which is which. And then of course, later we'll talk about what that, how that can affect, you know, post-surgical 
uh, symptoms and uh, treatment as well. Um, But really quick, so which one is the one that you prefer and why? I I do a transanal suave. Mm -hmm. I like to do the suave with a very short cuff because I think it helps to protect from uh, damage to the vagina uh, or the urethra mm-hmm. um, anteriorly. And, and I do a lot of teaching of yeah. people how to do pull-throughs, right? So um, I think that keeps the surgeon a little safer than the Swenson operation, which I think is at higher risk for damage to the urethra or the vagina. Sure. And then one thing I want to mention, so my understanding is that you are one of the pioneers of the transanal approach, which at least my understanding is that like, you know, that's very widely done now. Tell me more about that. Like, how did that, how did you think about doing that and how did that come about? Yeah. Well, like, like many innovations, it's, uh, it was built on previous innovations. Uh You know, it's, uh, it's the old saying that, uh, if I've seen further, it's because I've stood on the shoulders of giants. Sure. Right. Yeah. What happened was uh, a guy named Keith Jorgensen, uh-huh. um, who was a wonderful pediatric surgeon, worked in Birmingham, Alabama for most of his career. Um, he published a technique using laparoscopic surgery to to do the the pull through, and and his pull through was a, a kind of a form of a, a suave using laparoscopy. There was a a bit of a transanal dissection as part of his operation. So interesting. I did his operation a few times, and I started to wonder whether whether we really needed to do all that laparoscopic dissection uh-huh. from above. Um, so I, I started just doing it mostly from below and that became the transanal pull through. There was a, another uh, surgeon named uh, Louis de la Torre who was uh, in Mexico city at that time. Um, and he had started doing exactly the same thing. I made a video and showed it at the American college of surgeons meeting in 1997. Wow. And Louis de la Torre's partner was at the meeting, saw uh-huh. the video. He later told me he, that he, he rushed back to Mexico City <laughs> oh, no. and said, Louis, you got to publish your Yo, papers. There's wow. some guy in St. Louis doing the same operation. Oh, so, no. <laughs> so we, we, we both published that technique one month apart. So, wow. Yeah. That is... Uh... Oh man, do you ever think maybe I shouldn't have showed that video until after I published it? Yeah, it's all about the patient. Dude. Exactly. So, yeah, I yeah, don't yeah, care yeah. who gets the credit. <laughs> oh, that's funny. And so, like I mentioned before, one of the big reasons why we want to talk about this topic is to discuss some of the issues that we can see in children after they've had surgery. Because I think a lot of pediatric gastroenterologists, our impression is, or maybe their our, our teaching was that, oh, once the surgery happens, then Hirschsprung disease is dealt with. But of course, that is not the case. You know, before talking about, I guess, the um, more kind of conventional long-term potential symptoms that kids can have after surgery, I want to talk a little bit more about enterocolitis. So you mentioned that that can happen, of course, before the surgery, perhaps more likely before the surgery, but can still happen afterwards. What is enterocolitis again? Like, how do we treat that? How does that, how does that present and how can we treat it in like an acute setting? Well, enterocolitis, first of all, is the most common cause of death in kids with Hirschsprung oh, wow. disease. So yeah. it's really important. Mm-hmm. Um, it's an inflammatory condition that, that occurs in these kids, and we really don't understand the, the etiology of it. For sure, part of it is a stasis problem. Mm-hmm. Um, kids with Hirschsprung disease, as we mentioned before, don't have any reflex relaxation of their anal sphincter, so they do tend to retain stool. So there is probably some element of bacterial overgrowth that, that uh, is related to the inflammation. But there are likely other factors, 
probably related to the mucosal immune system mm. um, that play into this. There are some kids with Hirschsprung disease that get enterocolitis and some that just don't seem to. Interesting. Um, and there have been some studies years ago that looked at, um, at uh, immunoglobulin levels and uh, mucin types in kids with and without enterocolitis and found significant differences. Wow. Um, the microbiome itself probably also plays a significant role. So there's a lot of uh, research happening right now looking at all these factors and trying to sort out what, what actually is the etiology. Mm-hmm. Um, a child with enterocolitis presents acutely with abdominal distension, diarrhea, vomiting, and if it's allowed to progress, they can develop sepsis and they can die. So it's important for every uh, family to know what the symptoms are right. and to, to seek medical attention early on. But the first thing that they need to do is to irrigate. So the, uh-huh. the hallmark of treatment for acute enterocolitis in Hirschsprung disease is uh, rectal irrigation. Mm-hmm. So every child after they're pulled through, uh, every, the, the parents should be taught how to do irrigation and start the irrigation kind of before they head to the emergency department. Yeah. Um, and then once they get to the emergency department, they, they get an NG tube, they get uh, IV hydration and IV antibiotics. And uh, sometimes, you know, it turns out it's just a, a viral gastroenteritis, but it's always better to err on the side of caution and, uh, and treat it like it's enterocolitis till you've proven that it's not. Yeah. And just like from like a practical standpoint, you know, if we do encounter a patient like that in the ED and they are very sick and we suspect that's what it is. So rectal irrigation, do you use saline? How, what's the volume you use and how do you deliver it? Yeah, so there's, there's some great videos on YouTube about how mm-hmm. to do rectal irrigations. But uh, saline, usually just use saline. You know, put in, in, a, in a baby, it's put in uh, 10 or 20 cc's and then withdraw it and, and just kind of irrigate back and yeah. forth. It's a bit different from enemas. Yeah. Um, it's, it's sort of an in and out irrigation thing. That, that, and it's designed just to decompress that, uh, that colon and get rid of that bacterial load. Yeah. Okay, that's very helpful. And then I think... You know, in terms of the less acute, but just as bothersome problems of having, you know, issues after the surgery, um, broadly probably could be categorized into obstructive symptoms and then also just uh, soiling or fecal incontinence. Starting with the kid with Hirschsprung disease, who's had surgery, who struggles with obstructive symptoms like constipation, distension. How do you think through uh, what potential causes could be there and what tools do you use to try to figure that out? Yeah, so that's um, that's something that when I was training, we actually didn't didn't realize that mm. there were so many kids out there having these kinds of problems. Uh, so in the last couple of decades, there's been a lot of uh, increased recognition, and I think a lot of these kids do get managed by pediatric gastroenterologists. So right. it's uh, it's important for you to have an organized approach to these problems. So start with obstructive symptoms. There's there are five main causes for obstructive symptoms after a pull-through. The first one is a mechanical obstruction. Mm-hmm. For example, a stricture, which is probably the most common of those problems. Uh, kids with a suave can have, uh, we mentioned before, can have uh, a cuff that's a kind of encircling the, the pull-through bowel that, that causes obstruction. Kids with a, who've had a duhamel, that anterior aganglionic colon, if it's left too long, can fill up with stool mm-hmm. um, and can push on the pull through, which is coming posteriorly. You have to rule out some kind of mechanical obstruction. And, and you do that with a rectal exam mm-hmm. and a contrast enema. 
So if you do a rectal exam and a contrast enema and there's no evidence of, of a uh, mechanical obstruction, I mean, an another cause, especially early after a pull-through, is that the pull-through could have been twisted uh, as sure. it was being yep. pulled down. So. Uh, and that that you'll feel on uh, or you'll see on the contrast enema. So so that's the first thing: rule out a mechanical obstruction. The second cause is bad pathology. Mm -hmm. So if when you did the pull through, you got a frozen section, the pathologist said, "Okay, it's normal normal ganglion cells here." You pull that through. If the pathologist made an error, or the transition zone, that that zone between the completely aganglionic bowel and the completely normal bowel. If, uh, if that transition zone was misinterpreted as being normal by the mm. pathologist, yeah. then um, you may still have an element of Hirschsprung disease. Right. Um, you, you need normally innervated bowel right down above the sphincter to, to have normal function. So to rule that out, you have to do a rectal biopsy. Mm -hmm. We usually put the child to sleep and uh, identify the anastomosis and then go above that and, uh, and do a, a full thickness biopsy to give us the best possible chance of, of making that diagnosis. And, and if it, it turns out to be a ganglionic bowel that's been pulled down or a transition zone pull through, a lot of times they will need a redo pull through. Yeah. Um, the third possible cause is the non-relaxation mm -hmm. of the anal sphincter that we talked about before. Every child with Hirschsprungs is missing their rare, is, has right. a non-relaxing sphincter. But for reasons we don't understand, Many kids can learn how to overcome that non-relaxing sphincter, but some kids don't. Mm -hmm. um, and it causes obstructive symptoms like, uh, like chronic constipation, abdominal distension, or even enterocolitis. Mm -hmm. You can't use manometry to determine if that's the cause of the obstructive symptoms because every kid with Hirschsprungs has a non-relaxing sphincter. So right. it doesn't tell you anything. So what we've done instead is use Botox, injecting Botox into the sphincter to relax it. And um, if that causes an improvement in the symptoms of the child, then I think you can um, assume that that was the main cause of the obstructive symptoms. In the old days, um, the, the surgeons used to do a myectomy or they would, mm. they would cut the sphincter. And a lot of times it helped because that was the cause of the problem. But that's a permanent thing to do to cut right. a sphincter. Um, and this problem of internal sphincter achalasia, non-relaxation of the sphincter, the obstructive symptoms usually improve over time as the child gets mm -hmm. older. And, and most of these kids by the age of four or five have kind of grown out of it. So to have done a sphincter cutting operation, which could lead to more uh, continence issues later on, didn't make sense to me. So, so we started using Botox kind of in the late nineties as a, as a alternative because Botox wears off and it's a, it's a temporary solution for what is a temporary problem. Yeah. Right. So um, now let's say you've now you've got your kid with obstructive symptoms. You've ruled out a mechanical problem by rectal exam and contrast enema. You've done your, your biopsy that shows normal innervation in the pull through uh, you've given some Botox, and from a practical point of view, I usually do the biopsy and the Botox at the same time oh, sure. under one anesthetic, and, and the Botox hasn't really helped. The next thing to consider, the fourth cause of obstructive symptoms, is abnormal motility mm -hmm. in the colon proximal to the anastomosis. So even though it may have normal histology, uh, some kids have abnormal motility. 
And you can test for that using colonic manometry if you have it available. If you don't, then uh, you can do a, a colon transit study using nuclear medicine or even a SITS markers study sure. to, to assess what the motility is like. It's not that common, but occasionally you do find a child who's got abnormal motility and, and that can be treated either medically or in some cases we have to redo the pull through to remove the, uh, the immotile uh, yeah. piece of colon. The fifth possible cause is stool holding behavior, mm -hmm. functional constipation, whatever you right, want to call right. it, which pediatric gastroenterologists see every day. Um, and I think kids with Hirschsprungs are a bit more likely to get that because mm -hmm. they have a non-relaxing sphincter, so they have a tendency towards constipation, and the, they'll often end up having a painful stool, which, um, which in their little two-year-old mind, they say, well never doing that again right. so they, they hold it in yeah. and uh, it just potentiates the problem yeah that's excellent so yeah mechanical obstruction contrast enema can help determine that it's probably helpful to have you know partner with the the surgeon who ideally did the surgery and have an experienced radiologist to look for all those potential complications the second so you mentioned transition zone you know maybe there's some patholo pathology that wasn't interpreted correctly third so the non-relaxing internal anal sphincter, that's always going to be there. Um, so potentially injecting Botox to see whether that will improve the symptoms. And then distal colonic dysmotility, ideally assessed by manometry. And then finally, what we see, our bread and butter, stool withholding, functional constipation. Um, I did want to mention, so uh, you are the first person to use anal sphincter Botox for these patients. Um, can you talk about how that came about? Like, how did you get that idea? And like, how did you eventually try that in a child? As I said, the treatment used to be cutting the sphincter. Right. And, and, I, and I always hated doing that uh, because I knew that these kids were going to get better over the first four or five years. Um, and then I, I read some papers about using sphincteric Botox for fissures, mm -hmm. which is mostly in adults. Right. Um, but that seemed like, wow, that's, that's a, you know, that might be a good solution to this problem. So before I started injecting Botox into babies, we went to the lab and um, got some piglets and uh, injected Botox into their sphincters and did manometry before and then after the Botox injection. Wow. And we had a control group that, uh, that we injected saline. Oh, interesting. Um, so we were able to show that the sphincter pressures went down when you gave Botox mm -hmm. to these piglets. Um, and we also did some histological studies on their sphincters to make sure we weren't damaging anything, oh, sure. uh, you know, nerves or muscles with the Botox. So, you know, once I was satisfied that it was safe, then, you know, we had IRB approval, of course, but uh, we started injecting some children with obstructive symptoms using the kind of algorithm I, that I just talked about before. Yep. And it's, it's, you know, become kind of the standard uh, way to deal with things now. As you know, you know, now we do Botox for all kinds of outlet issues, including functional constipation, where presumably, well, not presumably, like we know their internal anal sphincter relaxes how it's supposed to. Um, what do you think, why do you think that helps? You know, I think we all in our minds like, well, it probably just loosens things up. So it makes it a little bit easier to push. But is, do you think that's like, why does it work for kids who have a normal relaxing internal anal sphincter? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. And, and, um, as I've talked about Botox over the years, uh, occasionally there's somebody in the audience who actually knows something about <laughs> muscle physiology. And I've been told by some of these people that uh, Botox actually doesn't really work on smooth muscle, which is what the internal sphincter is. Um, and, and so what, 
what I'm seeing is, is probably external sphincter uh-huh. yeah. uh, relaxation. And my answer to them is, I don't really care as long as it works. <laughs> right, <laughs> right, right. But right. that is something that, you know, is a, is a fertile area for investigation, I think. Yeah. And so that second category of, you know, kids struggling with symptoms after surgery is the child who has ongoing issues with fecal incontinence. Um, so take us through what your thought process is for those kinds of patients. I think when you're managing a child who's soiling after a pull through, mm-hmm. um, it's really important to figure out what the underlying cause of that problem is before you treat it. Right. Um, and I think it takes a little bit of time and thought to do that. So there are essentially three reasons why a kid will soil. The first one is that there's inadequate sphincter tone, mm-hmm. so a muscle problem. And that often is the result of a pull through that's been done using too much stretching of the, uh, of the sphincter. Um, and you can test for that using anorectal manometry, right? So I, that's part of the routine workup for a soiling child that, uh, in my hands. So, that's, so muscle is the first one. The second thing is sensation. You need normal sensation to have normal continence. Right. Um, and there's two kinds of sensation. One is a sensation of a full rectum. And that sometimes is abnormal mm-hmm. in a child after a pull-through because it's not really the rectum. It's, right. it's a sigmoid usually. Um, it's a neo-rectum. Um, which isn't necessarily designed to be a storage compartment. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can test for that with anorectal manometry too, by blowing up a balloon in the neorectum and asking the child when they feel it. Right. Um, but the other kind of sensation is, um, is the dentate line, the transitional epithelium between rectum mucosa and skin that provides um, very intense sensation that allows you to differentiate stool from gas and tells you when the stool is starting to come down. And if the pull-through has been done too low, Mm -hmm. um, then that dentate line will be gone, and that makes it harder for the child to to feel. Mm -hmm. Um, I think loss of the dentate line just by itself um, probably isn't enough to cause incontinence, but I think it's often combined. If a pull-through has been done poorly, um, by destroying the dentate line. Sometimes it's also caused sphincter, sphincter issues. Right. They both may contribute to the, to the incontinence. So if, if either of those things are, are bad enough, you have true incontinence. You have physiological right. incontinence because they've lost the continence mechanism. So those kids are best treated with a bowel management program. Mostly, most of them need some kind of mechanical emptying of the rectum, either with enemas from below or through anti-grade enemas through a Malone or a, or a cecostomy tube. Mm-hmm. The third cause for soiling um, is kids who actually have the physiological capability of having good control, but they don't have good control. And there's two possible causes for that. One is a child with hypermotility, where the fact that this, it's now the sigmoid that's coming down to the anus, the sigmoid is, as I said, is not designed to store stool. It's designed to propel stool. So sometimes those kids just have peristalsis that's coming down to the anal sphincter and they just can't control it. And so those kids need to be managed by slowing the bowels down, using loperamide, using a constipating diet. The other group of kids are the kids who have hypomotility. They're the ones who have a a neorectum that's just full of stool. Um, It's essentially, you know, a constipated kid. And that child needs the opposite. They don't need to have their bowels slowed down. They need to 
have it stimulated right. and they need to have fiber and the stimulant laxatives, et cetera. Um, you can differentiate the hyper from the hypo motility a lot of times just on a contrast enema, mm. just looking mm-hmm. at the caliber of the, of the neorectum and how much stool is in it. Um, but if you want to get fancy, then uh, colonic manometry is, is a more accurate way of doing it. And it can also help you with the response of the colon to uh, various medications, et cetera. Just to kind of go through, um, so, you know, low anal sphincter tone, manometry can help identify that. Disruption of the sphincter, uh, disruption of the sensation, just especially with the disruption of the dentate line. Um, I think for all those things, the treatment would probably be, like you said, mechanically emptying, making sure there's nothing in there to leak out. And then kind of that third category would be, you know, hyperperistalsis of the colon, pushing things way too quickly. The anal sphincter has no chance of slowing it down, just comes out versus hypomotility and more like a, you know, retention and overflow incontinence situation like we see in functional constipation as well. Um, you know, I think we have many examples of really strong, frequent, high amplitude propagating contractions going straight down to the anal sphincter. You can tell like the pressures in the colon are so much higher than the anal sphincter. There's just no way it'll stop. And so, um, yes, it is, you know, it, it is helpful to have a colonic monitor if, if available. Um, but that's very helpful to go through. I think, you know, we also see some of those patients referred from other practices where it's just, it's assumed that it's, once the surgery's been done, that this must be one of the other reasons like we typically see with functional constipation. But uh, certainly before thinking about that, it's important to identify the actual underlying cause. Well, the, and there are, we've published algorithms for both of these that we've encouraged mm. people to, to uh, photocopy and put it yes. up on the wall in the clinic to yeah. kind of help them work their way through it. I think it also emphasizes, you know, now more and more, there's more, you know, colorectal programs with collaboration between surgery and GI I feel like this is one of those areas that you really need both partners in that relationship to take the optimal care of the child. Right. I agree with that a hundred percent. So, okay. Now we're approaching the end of our time. This was kind of when I realized last time that I was not recording, <laughs> but, um, so our last like Hirschsprung disease related question. So, um, obviously so much has changed. You, you talked about some of the major advances in the care of children with uh, Hirschsprung disease, including, you know, no longer relying on colostomy to like, let the child grow older and develop, um, the different types of surgery, the different approaches using Botox, thinking about caring for the child after surgery. But what do you think is coming in the future? Like, what are the things that you feel like are really promising in this field right now? Yeah, I think there's a couple of things. Um, the, the first thing is um, we now recognize that Hirschsprung disease is probably not a single disease. Uh-huh. It's, there, are, there are multiple very disparate genes that have been identified to cause Hirschsprung disease. Um, it's a phenotype, yeah. but it's probably caused by a bunch of different kinds of genes, different mechanisms. And that probably explains the heterogeneity of the clinical presentation. Yeah. You know, why does um, one child with a, with a transition zone at the rectosigmoid junction present as a newborn with a bowel obstruction and mm-hmm. another child with exactly the same transition zone presents as a five-year-old with chronic constipation? Why do some kids get enterocolitis and some kids don't? So I think a better understanding of the correlation between genotype and phenotype mm-hmm. um, is going to help us to kind of personalize the 
the management of these kids. And yeah. um, we've, we've got a consortium called the Hirschsprung's Disease Research Consortium, HDRC, um, which is made up of geneticists, surgeons, gastroenterologists, and pathologists. We're collecting patients to ultimately do that kind of genotype-phenotype correlation. We're hoping to get 1,000 patients and oh, about half awesome. of the way there now. So as we get to wrapping up, so obviously we talked about you've had a long, very productive, accomplished career. Looking back, what do you think is the most valuable advice you received and what advice do you have for our listeners? Well, probably my most important mentor was my father, who was oh. uh, Bernard Langer, who was uh, a hepatobiliary surgeon who was quite prominent. Um, and of course, you know, was a role model for me. And, right. and I think the most important two lessons that he taught me were number one, find your passion mm-hmm. and follow it. Mm-hmm. Right. Don't, don't do something because somebody else says it's important. You know, you gotta, you gotta feel it yourself. Right. Um, and that's actually a, what I just said is a quote from a, a guy named Isidore Rabbi, who was, uh, who was quoted. Mike Harrison had that up on the wall in the lab. Oh. You know, you don't do something because somebody else says it's important. You feel the <laughs> thing yourself. And the other thing he taught me just, because I actually trained in his training wow. program, so I worked yeah. with him as, as, uh, as a mentor. Um, but he always made the point that the patient comes first, mm-hmm. right? That's the most important thing. It's more important than the research you're doing. It's more important than whatever educational um, commitment you have. Uh, you, you have to think about what's in the patient's best interest and, and follow, follow that. What I've discovered over my life so far the, the, is that, that the most impri- important priority really above patient care is, mm-hmm. is your family. Um, and I've tried to live that. I guess that's one of the reasons I've been married for 45 years right. to the first person I married. Yeah. Um, uh, strong relationships are, especially with your family, are uh, have been shown actually in this this long Harvard study that's now uh, been written about is is that strong relationships are the most important predictor of happiness yeah. in your life. And the other thing is that um, it's the small decisions that you make day to day that are important. Mm-hmm. It's not whether you decide to become a pediatric surgeon or a pediatric gastroenterologist. It's whether you decide to stay and, and do one more case as a uh-huh. resident, or are you going to go home and, uh, and see your kids or go to your, you know, your kid's baseball game. Right. It's the day-to-day decisions that, that really make the difference in your life more than the big decisions. So there's a few words of wisdom. So good. I love that. I, and I remember we had a conversation in the past where you were telling us about how, of course, you get invited to do so many conferences, so many talks, and you really try to be there uh, at home for the weekend. Right. And uh, even if it meant, you know, missing sessions that your friends are talking at and, but it's, you know, family is the number one priority. So I feel like that's something I don't even, I think you're just telling a group of people, but I really like buried that in my mind. I feel like this is something I got to live by. And, you know, it's our final question so obviously we talked about so many things that listeners need to take away from today's episode, but what do you think are the top three things that people should take away about this topic? I'll expand it to about this interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. The, I think the, as far as the medical part here, the, the Hirschsprung disease discussion, I think the, the, the takeaway message is that Hirschsprung kids can have problems 
uh, after their pull through. Yeah. Um, it's important when you're dealing with those problems to understand exactly what the basis of that problem is before you treat it. And, uh, and there are now algorithms and investigations that can really help you to, to do that. So, um, it's important to, to take an organized approach. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, which we didn't actually really talk about it, we kind of talked about it a bit, is that most of these problems actually get better over time. Ah, uh, yeah. Uh, the obstructive mm-hmm. symptoms and the soiling issues um, and the risk of enterocolitis, mm-hmm. they tend to decrease in severity and frequency as the child gets older. And most kids by the age of five, mm-hmm. and certainly most kids by the time they're teenagers, um, are way better. Yeah. Than, than they were, you know, over those first few years. So that's the message that's important to give to the families yeah. um, so that they have uh, a lot of, you know, hope, hope. and can anticipate a, a good outcome. So that's number one. Um, we talked about, you know, life. Yes. And <laughs> so I guess my, the, the take-home message is uh, that diversification is important in your life and not just in your financial portfolio, right? right. right? Richness in life. Yeah. yeah. So just, yeah, make sure that you have a multidimensional life, starting with your family, but also with, you know, your interests, your hobbies. Uh, don't put all your eggs in your professional basket. Yeah. And then uh, I guess the third thing was, you know, we started off by talking about Toronto. I would say everybody should come to Toronto, to visit, but, <laughs> yes. but not in the winter. <laughs> Thank you so much for doing two interviews. And uh, I know like our audience is going to really benefit from your words of wisdom, both about Hirschman disease, but also about life. Um, I think that's going to be very inspiring to hear. So thank you. Oh, you're welcome. It's been a pleasure. Oh, man. Hope you guys uh, enjoyed the interview and also some of the original music stylings of our guest, Dr. Langer. Um, But man, what a great guest and what a great topic. I feel like, honestly, until we like really started working closer with our colorectal surgeons, I had no idea what the different types of Hirschsprung disease surgery were. Uh, You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, they're always on our boards, but like you just study them for that. I don't think it's even on our boards. Oh, really? I don't think I've ever. Yeah. I mean, until... All right, anyways. Either way, it was so nice to have him, and it was so nice that he was so grateful to do it twice. <laughs> so thank yeah. you, Dr. Langer. And if you don't already, be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram at, at Balsounds and on Facebook at, at Pediatric GI Podcast for the latest news and updates on upcoming episodes. If you like what you heard and want to support the podcast, it would really help us out if you did one or all the following three things. One, tell one person about the podcast. Two, leave a review on Apple Podcasts. We haven't given a shout out recently, but we are reading them all. Thank you so much. And three, on our Buzz Out page, there's a link to support the show by making a donation to the Naspian Foundation. You can get there through our organization website, which is www.naspghan.org. Yep, the money you donate helps support some of the amazing things Naspigan Foundation is doing, including pediatric GI research and public education programs. And as always, the discussion views and recommendations of this podcast are the sole responsibility of the host and guest and are subject to change with advances in the field. Thanks. Bye. Enjoy this last song. Bye. Bye. In the light, you can.